You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my lovely partner, Dr. Jess. Hey, hey, you know what's on my mind? Talk to me. Talk to me like you're a therapist, <laughs> like I'm lying on your couch. T.I. You can band. have whatever you like. Can you do rubber band, man? I can, but I'm not going to. Okay, so T.I. I've always been a fan. Yeah, you're a big fan of T.I. I, well, I was. You were. Oh, past tense. Yeah. Well, he's recently opened up about taking his 18-year-old daughter to the gynecologist every year to make sure that they inspect her hymen to make oh. sure that it's intact. Wow. Yes. And apparently she signs a form giving him permission to find out whether or not it's intact. I'm surprised that a doctor is willing to do this in the first place because when it comes to the hymen and inspecting the hymen, the World Health Organization cautions against this. They're quite clear that inspecting the hymen is not a sign of so-called virginity. And I'll say first and foremost that virginity is a social construct. There is no one specific act that makes you a virgin or not a virgin. I always think about, well, what if you have different types of sex? What if you are a lady who has sex with another person who's a lady? Two vaginas rubbing against each other, doing that, doing the sucking, the licking, the W, all that fun stuff to cross my fingers. Are you a virgin because you've never had a penis in there? So first of all, virginity in and of, its, in and of itself is a highly gendered social construct. I also heard T.I., I think, talking about his 15-year-old son not being a virgin. So there's this huge double standard. But the other piece is that the hymen is it's a thin mucus kind of tissue fold. And it's not... Uh, you know, like a balloon that covers the entire vagina. It's not something that you pop. It can wear away over time through menstruation, through your regular discharge. Your vagina is a self-cleaning oven. So anyone who has a vagina knows that stuff is always coming out of it. You know, it can be clear. It can be odorless. Depends on the time of the month. It can be a little bit more milky. It can be a little bit more egg white consistency. I don't know if you know that, Brandon, because you don't have your own vagina. I do not, but I'm learning a lot right now. So please continue. Well, I can tell you when I was maybe about 13 and I started experiencing vaginal discharge and you see kind of just some plain white stuff on your underwear, it really freaked me out. I was really concerned and I didn't know what it was. Yeah, I'd freak out 100%. Yeah, and this was 1962, so we didn't have the internet. <laughs> no, but for real, it was 1992, 1993, and I couldn't turn to the internet. I'm sure there was dial-up at the library or something like that, but I didn't have it at my house. I think we had a 486 back then. You're throwing out a whole bunch of stuff. A lot of people won't even know what you're talking about. Oh, okay. Well, 486 was this computer, and I can't describe it in any greater detail than that. I had a Commodore 64. Oh, what's that? It's a really old box that you can play video games on. <laughs> Did it have one button? Yeah, pretty much. And it took like five minutes to yeah. boot up. I'm interested about this double standard though. So TI Look at probably, Brandon. Hang on. Look at Brandon wanna, being the wanna, one reeling in I the wanna, conversation. I gotta take this back on track. No, 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 for real though. Like a couple of things. Number one, would TI feel the same way about his son? No. You know? Like of course not. I think in an old I mean, interview, I'm assuming not. I think in an old interview, he was actually lamenting the fact that his son was a virgin, or then bragging that he wasn't, or something like that. So, in in addition to that, does this not might this not encourage his daughter to have different forms of sex, and 
like, you know, the concerns or the risks that are associated with those types of sex if they're not um, doing it in a protective manner? Yeah, well, absolutely. I actually think this is an absolute threat to her health. I think that it's encouraging her to hide, to lie, to not even have the opportunity to disclose her sexual behavior and, you know, health status and ask for testing from her doctor. So this is really interfering. I also want to consider the fact that, yes, she she filled out a form allowing her father access to her records, supposedly. But under what duress, right? Does he pressure her to do this? Does he have financial power over her? Does he have undue pressure over her? You know, I think that we see this in pop culture where young women are revered for being virgins and young guys brag about losing their virginity at at an early age. And it, it reeks of men owning women's bodies, you know, fathers having more agency over their daughters' bodies than the daughters themselves. And yeah, it's really, really concerning to me. It's interesting because I posted about this on my Facebook wall today and somebody said that, oh, no, this is him showing concern for her sexual health. And let me tell you, this seems like control, not concern. I think it is great that you are concerned about your child's or your teen's sexual health. I think it's important to provide them with accurate information. But ultimately, good sex education empowers people to have agency over their own bodies and over their own decisions and not necessarily hold one specific thing up as a status symbol. I didn't even finish all the other ways your hymen can wear away, like using tampons, like having your period, like hormonal changes, like riding a bicycle, regular exercise, and just time. Yeah, I was concerned about what happens if she has chosen not to be sexually active and, you know, the doctor finds that the hymen is broken. Great question. What what happens then? Or, or who cares whether she's sexually active or not because it's really not my business. No. But what if the hymen is broken? What are the consequences for this young woman with her father? Well, that's what I was wondering. So there's just so many different layers to this and so many problems yeah. that it requires anyway. And and the message here is that we're telling young people and women in particular that you cannot be honest about your sexual history or sexual behavior with your physician because they might tell your parents. Yeah. Yeah, really concerning to me. And you know, as I said, big TI fan, you always sing TI at karaoke? I you'd usually jam it out, but maybe no longer. Oh, are you going to give up on T.I.? I think I might have to after this story. Maybe he'll redeem himself somehow. Uh, uh, there are a lot of stories with T.I., aren't there? Uh, yeah, yeah, there are a lot. Well, today we're actually going to be talking about an entirely different set of topics, from sexless marriages to sexual communication to opening up relationships to sexual c- compatibility and incompatibility, as well as what to do if one of you wants an open relationship and one of you wants a monogamous relationship. Today, we are joined by Heather McPherson, sex therapist and founder of projects, including the Sexual Health Alliance. And I'll actually be joining you in Austin very soon for an interesting clinical training. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Now, Brandon and I, we've spoken with so many sex therapists about you know a range of topics from emotional literacy to sexless marriages, but we haven't really talked about sex therapy itself and your organization, the Sexual Health Alliance across the nation and beyond. You help with training and certification for sex therapists. So I thought we could start there. Why do therapists need training specifically in sex? Yeah, so that's a really great question and something that 
I've encountered time and time again, year after year in my work as a sex therapist. Uh, Whenever I went and got my training through graduate programs, there were little to no education options in sexual health. So you could become uh, a, a therapist, a couples therapist, or an individual therapist and have literally zero in the clinical room. And I thought that was a, a really significant ethical issue. And so we started the Sexual Health Alliance to provide an opportunity that's affordable and accessible for general therapists and healthcare providers to attend and get that sex therapy, sex education training in learning how to talk about sex with their patients and clients. And do you think that every therapist should at least have some basic training in sexuality? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah, I I see a lot of clients that will have gone to other therapists, other couples therapists, and they'll come to see me and they'll tell me that their other therapists for the last 10 years have never, ever brought up sex in the room, in the therapy room. So they never inquired about their sexuality or their erotic lives. And as we know, in couples, uh, one of the reasons why couples get divorced can be sex or money, right? Sex is one of the top reasons. And so I think it's a significant issue to not have the training, to not be able to assess your own biases um, and have that specific education surrounding sexual health and surrounding couples therapy and sex therapy combined. And so the cost of not having sexuality training, I can think back to when I was in practice and, you know, I had a woman come to me who didn't have orgasms through intercourse, who would come to me and say, if I brought up sex in session, my therapist would say, I won't go there. And what Mm -hmm. a core component of your identity, of your relationship to entirely leave off the table. Right. In psychotherapy, psychiatry is generally a very conservative field. So I get it. It's a, you know, sex, the field of sex therapy is, is growing and it's new. And, you know, obviously with the Sexual Health Alliance, we're really actively trying to bring the education so people can get trained in these issues. But it's, it's, a, it's a significant issue. And, and I see a lot of harm being done with clients and patients. Right. There's this assumption that if you have an expertise or an area of expertise, that it extends into other areas. And sexuality is not necessarily intuitive. You know, if we're just breeding like animals, then it can be intuitive. You kind of know what you want to do. But if you're staying in long-term relationships um, and you're trying to make sex about pleasure or about intimacy or communication or connection, it really is a learned behavior. Individuals need education. It follows that therapists, clinicians, practitioners need therapy too. And when we think about some of the common issues that therapists, especially sex therapists, are seeing, and I know you have your specialty, which I'd like to get to, but one of the common ones I'm hearing from the other therapists you know, that I network with is either differentials in desire or sexless marriages. And I was reading a report that suggests that an estimated 15 to 20% of married couples consider their relationship sexless. And this is one of the top ranked search terms across North America. So is this something you've run into? And how how do we even begin to address sexless marriages? 
Yes, absolutely. If you're a certified sex therapist in private practice, you run into this issue every single day. Um, I think sexless marriages, I think one of the definitions I've seen is that if you're having sex 12 or less times a year, so about once a a month or less, oftentimes I'll see it a lot less. And it can be a significant issue because it impacts the relationship and all the other areas and domains. I was just surprised, like 12 times a year. I didn't know that was the threshold. I actually thought it would have been less than that because I, I know that some people will have sex, you know, twice a month and that seems normal. So, you know, 12 times doesn't seem that low, but are you seeing a lot of people that have a lot less sex, like completely sexless? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see kind of all the whole range. And I think that the the critical piece when handling some of these issues is figuring out what is an issue for the patient or client, the couple that's in your room or the patient that's in your room, what's an issue for them? Because oftentimes we will have couples come into the office that say we're having sex two or three times a month and that's not enough when I'm living in a sexless marriage, right? And so uh, there's really no definition that is that applies to everyone that's, you know, be all for everyone. And it really depends. Is this a significant issue for your relationship? That makes sense. So if it's causing you distress, then it's an issue we need to address. If you're having sex 12 times a year and you're happy with it, you can be perfectly fulfilled. You know, I've heard, yeah, I've heard researchers suggest that six months without sex is a reasonable standard to meet the criteria for sexless. But other people say a year, you know, I was talking to a couple of friends the other day and uh, one of them said they've had sex, I think she said 15 times in just over six years, so a couple of times a year, and she considers her relationship sexless. And another one says that that she has not had sex in a year and a half, and she considers it sexless. So where do you begin in a sexless marriage? What is the first step that you would take in therapy? So oftentimes, I will begin with the question, when was the last time you had sex and how was it? That can be a really important question just to get a baseline as to where they're at in the present moment. Whenever whenever couples come in with this issue or even individuals come in with this issue, it's really important to assess the relationship health and what's going on within the relationship. Because oftentimes we'll see couples come in and say, we're having a wonderful relationship. We love each other so much. We do really wonderful things together. Um, Everything else is great, but we're not having enough sex. And so that can be something that we start with in terms of, okay, great, let's let's pull some strengths from this relationship. What else is good in your relationship? And how has that catapulted you into the successful long-term relationship? Because oftentimes it's a long-term relationship. Couples will get together in the beginning. It'll be hot and heavy. It'll be easy, right? It's easy to um, have sex more often. You're thinking about each other all day, every day. Uh, There's a lot of foreplay mentally, physically. And so it's a lot easier to have sex a lot more often. But whenever you you have a long-term relationship and and the years pass on and you get into the business of the relationship and the to-do list, it can be really easy for, you know, your sexual energy and erotic energy to fade into the background and not be as much of a priority. And I see a lot of the, the issue that I specifically work with whenever I see these couples at my office in Respark Therapy is that 
whenever you have a couple that comes in with um, with a loss of desire or maybe one partner wants sex more than the other, it really comes down to a lack of sex education. I don't know how to talk to my partner about sex. I don't know how to initiate. I feel really badly about the ways that maybe my partner has initiated in the past. And that's created a lot of resentment and a lot of hurt and a lot of pain over the years. And so there's a lot of different issues that go into the specific um, concern of, you know, lack of passion, lack of desire, sexless marriage. But I think that it really does come down to being able to have the education, the psychoeducation around being able to have these conversations with each other because that's something that they never really learned how to do. Is there one, is there a commonality that kind of is the, uh, the trigger that, that kind of initiates a sexless relationship or a sexless marriage? Uh, well, you know, whenever you have kids, that can definitely put a, put the sex on the back burner. Not always, but I know that that's been something that I consistently see in my practice. And I have 12 therapists that work me, with me in my group practice in Austin and Denver, and, and they see it as well. And so, uh, yeah, definitely having a child. Uh, new life changes can bring this about. So in starting new jobs, moving, um, it kind of forces you to take a relationship temperature as far as how we're doing um, after all those things have settled down, obviously, but it, it kind of forces you to go, okay, like, am I really happy in this? Do I really want this? Um, one of the main uh, issues that I see is that whenever someone has lost someone or maybe they've had like a midlife crisis, quarter life crisis, um, that really forces them to take, um, you know, inventory of what is happening in the relationship and am I getting my needs met. So if we talk about, you know, children, the loss of someone or something important to you, if you see or you start feeling yourself going down that path, you know, how would you suggest kind of nipping, nipping it in the bud so that, you know, you've taken stock of where you are and you're like, oh, geez, it's been however long it's been. And, you know, now I'm, I'm like, I don't want to fall down that, that path. I don't want to go that way. How would you suggest moving forward so that you don't in a healthy way, sorry, so that you do in a healthy way have, um, you know, a healthy sex life? Yeah. So the biggest, <laughs> the biggest advice I can give specifically with this issue is just to talk about it. That's so often where couples fall flat is they don't have the language, they don't have the education to actually just talk about it with their partner. And that can be because of a lot of reasons. It can be because of the education, but it can also be just because there's past resentment and past hurt and they're afraid or they don't know what to say. And so just to be able to say, hey, I'm really seeing that we are having less sex than we had before. Is that something that you're seeing as well? Is that something that you're feeling? Is that something that we want to improve upon? And that's a very like uh, business way of handling it. Another way of handling it is really just upping your game in terms of how often you touch your partner, how often you're talking about sex, that can be a way to um, do it naturally. It depends on your style as a couple and how you approach issues. Yeah, I think that's so important to have the language to say, I'm, I'm observing this. 
do you notice the same thing too? So you're not going at them in an accusatory way. You're not making a complaint. You're not suggesting right. that it's anybody's fault. You're saying, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I think is happening. And, you know, take the pulse of how they're feeling too, because chances as chances are, if something's bothering you, it might be bothering them too. And I also appreciate that you emphasize upping your own game, because we have a tendency to this isn't working and therefore the deficit must lie with you. Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, we and, blame. <laughs> exactly. And and I also think what I found is if a couple comes to you and they haven't had sex in six months or six years, they're not going to have one conversation with you and go home and bang it exactly. out that night. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. But there are yeah. other things you can do to reconnect because oftentimes if you've stopped having sex, you've also stopped being physically affectionate. And so- right. It can be a process where you're just learning to hold one another's hands again, learning to snuggle, learning to kiss, learning to touch. And then when the mood strikes you without pressure, you might move back into what, what we consider, you know, a sexual relationship. Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that I've found in my practices working with couples is really assessing how do they play Right. What, what, how much playfulness do they have in their relationship? Do they go and do fun things together? That can really be an important piece to this equation because if they don't know how to have fun together and they've stopped playing together, it's going to be really hard to play together in the bedroom. Right. And that's, that's so important. You can't expect your behavior in the bedroom to be something totally different than your behavior outside the bedroom. Now, you, you specialize in opening up relationships, so couples who are interested in perhaps moving from monogamy to consensual non-monogamy. Next weekend in Austin, we're actually focused on the topic of monogamish and a couple of other subtopics. Tell me what you see in practice. Are most folks coming and they're both on board? Is there sometimes a differential in desire there when it comes to opening up the relationship? Yes, absolutely. There's, a, there's quite a few ways that this can play out in the therapy room. Uh, oftentimes, a couple will come in, one partner has decided that they want to open the relationship, and the other partner uh, is caught off guard, stunned, shocked, hurt, frustrated, name all the emotions in the book. <laughs> um, and so that's what has brought them into therapy. There's a lot of other ways that can, it can play out, for instance, where a couple comes in, maybe what they've been open, are they've been swingers, or they've been casually open or monogamish, um, where maybe they do things every once in a while and then all of a sudden someone has caught feelings and now they are in love with the person that they occasionally had played with in the past. And so it, then it becomes, you know, we were once open, but now this partner wants to be polyamorous with this other person. And that can create significant divides and uh, issues within the relationship. So let's start with this first scenario that one person wants to open it up and the other feels, you know, caught off guard and feels all those different things. How do you begin? How do you facilitate a meaningful conversation? Oftentimes I'll take it back to how did these conversations begin? And this is kind of across the board with any couple that I'm dealing with. How did these conversations begin and when was that? Because oftentimes we don't have explicit conversations about what we want or what we desire. And so we just kind of move along throughout our relationship and throughout our life and little things happen and we begin to make assumptions and we begin to um, say, okay, that's what my partner wants, or I guess that's what's going to happen and I just have to deal with it. And so really figuring out 
was there a negotiation process? Did they sit down and talk about this issue and say, this is what I'm okay with, this is what I'm not? Was there a point where I will not be in this relationship if you want an open relationship or if you're going to be polyamorous with this other person? Were were there kind of non-negotiables that were discussed? And now they're at this point where they're stuck and this other partner uh, really would like to continue with this relationship, but they also want to keep the primary relationship. And so they're stuck because partner says, I do not want that for my life, right? And and I think that's a really important piece to this is whenever you have any couples dealing with any of these issues, you have to have both of them have some kind of buy-in. Even if one partner is going to stay monogamous and the other partner is going to be open or poly, that monogamous partner has to have some kind of buy-in to why I'm consenting to this type of relationship style. And what would that buy-in be that, you know, I'm uncomfortable with this. This is not my first choice of how we would format this relationship, but I love you and I love our life together. And so I'm going to stay nonetheless. Is that is that a, you I mean know. that could be that could be one way. I would I would encourage that partner to think about um what needs within the relationship is this meeting, right? So perhaps um their partner has experiences sexually or otherwise with this other person that they are not willing to meet. Um, or they they have put a hard limit on I, I don't want to do that particular sex act or I don't I'm not kinky person um, and so this is how you get your needs met outside of the relationship. Um, really though, whenever we're looking for buy-in, we're really looking for I really love to see my partner. Um, have these experiences, to be able to explore their sexuality, to be able to explore other people. And although I'm not interested in that, I can see the value in that. Once we can get that kind of buy-in, then it's a lot easier to be successful long-term. Well, that sounds like a more desirable and more mutually beneficial buy-in than the first scenario, which I described. Exactly. And so how do you cultivate that? Uh, You know, some people, when I think about sexual norms, sexual shame, rigidity around sexual expectations, how do you help people to kind of cross the road or move into uncharted territory if they come from a space of no, monogamy is the way uh, and everything else scares me too much? So I think it's important to note that there are absolutely many, many people that will never want to be in a relationship where their partner is open or poly, no matter what, forever and ever, right? And I think that that's a really important distinction to make and and important to talk about because forcing someone to do something that they don't want to do is never going to create a healthy relationship. And so if, if you're one of those people that I do not believe in this type of relationship style or I do not want this for myself, I don't want to, you know, have the long conversations or, you know, challenge myself in this way. It's not, it's not something that's for me, what have you, whatever reasons you have, then that's within your own right to decide for yourself. And then you have to figure out, is this relationship right for me or how am I going to move forward, right? Whenever you have someone who does want to figure this out, does want to make this work, um, wants to understand this type of relationship structure in a way that helps them move forward and helps them grow together, then we, we have something to work with. I appreciate that you bring that up because it's also perfectly valid to want to be entirely monogamous. Exactly. And 
And having said that, I think what so many of us are lacking, wherever we fall on the spectrum from monogamous to monogamish to consensually non-monogamous to relationship anarchists, you need to know yourself. And I think that might be the big gap that exists is that right. it's not just that we are, we're not finding someone compatible. It's not just that we're not having those conversations. It's that we're not even considering our own sexual and relational needs in depth. We're making assumptions. We're falling into things by accident. We're even experimenting you know, off the cuff by accident instead of really sitting down and yes. thinking own sexual values and identity. And that's, that's work that we as, as professionals in the field really need to do as well. Yes, exactly. I think that that's, that hits on a really important point that I kind of assess in all um, couples, individuals I see in practice is where are you at in terms of your sexual development? Right. How, how much have you explored your sexuality? How, what is your language surrounding your sexuality? Do you masturbate? Do you, um, have you had multiple partners in the past or is this, you know, the first person that you've ever had sex or intercourse with? Um, what, what, what experiences are you bringing to the table? And I think that's a really important piece because if we don't have the language, if we don't have the, uh, if we haven't spent time on cultivating our own sexuality and exploring our values and our desires and, you know, if you have any kinks or if you have any, um, any things that you like to do, if you haven't spent time really assessing that, really being honest with yourself about that, then it's going to be really difficult to explore some of these other relationship styles. All of this sounds so great. And I mean, sitting here having this conversation, I'm taking so much out of it. At the same time, Jess, I've heard you for the last you know, 15 years talk about how in relationship, you expect them to be your friend, your lover, your business confidant, you, you know, helping you with children, helping you around the house. And then at the end of the day, in the middle of the day, whenever you're wanting to have sex with your partner, you have all these other layers that fall into place where it's like, am I, you know, we're still thinking about the laundry or whatnot. So do you find that most people are really having these conversations to get started, to really understand how they, you know, how they feel sexually, how they feel in terms of fulfillment within the relationships? Like, is that a normal thing that, that most people are asking themselves? I think it really depends on who you're talking to with some of these couples as you know, Dan Savage calls it varsity level sex couples uh, with some of these couples that are uh, open, poly, kinky, exploring some of these other alternative sexualities. Uh, they are having these conversations. They have been having these conversations for decades sometimes. Uh, for other couples that maybe don't have much experience sexually, maybe this is their high school sweetheart or this is someone that, uh, that has limited experience before they got together, maybe both of them not having those conversations. And I think that that's the biggest piece to, to assess is how much do we talk about sex? What is our comfort level in talking about sex with each other? Do we feel comfortable expressing our desires and our wants? Do we feel comfortable initiating? What does it look like to initiate? I mean, all of those questions are so critical when you're working with couples as a therapist to assess where are we at in this relationship? You know, when you talk about talking about sex, I, I think a lot of people are wondering, how do I get my partner to open up and talk about 
sex, if shy about it, or if they're uncomfortable. And I just want to bring up a dynamic that I observe often, which is one partner feels that they're far more open about sex. Perhaps they're more vocal about sex. Perhaps they're more experienced. Perhaps they have a wider range of interests. And they often approach the perhaps less um, experienced or less vocal partner with judgment, with an elitism, like, well, I've done all this and I'm much more open (laughs) than you. And I think that that is really setting yourself up for failure. So if you are the partner that, you know, considers yourself more open, first of all, I, I struggle around that language because it, again, it positions one partner as a gatekeeper or one partner as more problematic. But how do you approach your partner in a way that isn't elitist, in a way that isn't kind of a teacher-student relationship, unless you're into that as a kink, but just let's say you're not. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Well, I think the example that you gave, um, it's adding more shame, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the goal is to decrease shame and increase acceptance and, you know, really have an open atmosphere where we feel safe in talking about these things. Uh, if we're approaching it with an elitist attitude, well, I've had all these experiences and you haven't, you're already you're already out of the out of the gate gonna fail. That that's not a that's not a way to really talk with your partner and increase and get what you want. Um, if you are approaching them in a way that makes them feel comfortable. Um, giving them a heads up that this is something that, that you want to talk about or, um, you know, going in, I'm a big pro- a, a proponent of adding in other types of media or, um, or outside, you know, in addition to verbal communication, right? So what if you were to go see a movie uh, and it could be a movie in the big screen or it could be porn, right? Um, but what if you, you know, introduce some of these concepts um, through movies, through podcasts like this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, he- I heard this really great podcast. It's called Sex with Jess. Let's, let's listen to it this afternoon, and then we can talk about it afterwards, right? I think being able to introduce it in a way that's not threatening. And not really you know, personal. Helps- yeah, it helps your partner kind of like open up like this is something that sounds fun and exciting and it's not like an issue or a problem. You know, if you're if you're approaching it in a fun and playful way, like, ooh, I read this really fun book or I read this really fun erotica online. Do you want to see it? Um, you know, do you want to know what it's about? You know, if you if you approach it in that kind of uh you know, feel, then you're more likely to have success in having your partner open up to talking about it. I really appreciate that. I think it's the only time it's appropriate to talk about other people is to look at kind of fictional characters on screen or stories in books. And then you can talk about how you felt about how somebody behaved without actually talking about yourself. So you're talking about a relationship in which you see yourself, but it's not your relationship to begin with. And eventually, I think that bridges the conversation to discuss your personal relationship. I love that approach. I also love that approach. I'll note for kids and teens, I think it's a great way to talk about sex and relationships is to turn to pop culture. And so I think you've given some really great starting points for folks to approach a partner perhaps who isn't as comfortable talking about sex. Now, what about if this is brand new, you've had a monogamous relationship, maybe you never even talked about it, you just fell into monogamy, which is the case in most relationships. Mm-hmm. And, and you think you might want to open it up. You're not making a demand of your partner. You may not even be entirely sure yourself, because let's be honest, none of us is really ever sure about anything. Mm-hmm. How do you, what is the language with which you start that conversation? 
It's a really good question. And I think that uh, I think that how you approach that initial conversation can set the tone for later on. Um, and I will add that oftentimes people approach that conversation when, you know, the partner has already had their eye on someone else. <laughs> um, and that can be a really significant issue. So if you're able to approach this conversation in a way that feels safe to your partner, that um, you can use pop culture, you can use media. There's a lot of celebrities in the field that have been rumored or have, have talked openly about open or poly relationships. So if you can use kind of an external example and stories to help, probably a better idea than pointing the finger saying, you know, I would like to do this, you're not giving me this. That That's not a, an appropriate way. But if we're able to really foster a safe environment, talk about other people and in, in their relationships and, you know, things that you've seen in movies or online, uh, maybe your friends doing that, doing it, you know, one in five people, according to research, one in five people are uh, in an open or poly relationship, a consensual non-monogamous relationship. So it's really, really common. So it's really easy to say, oh, you know what? I read this really interesting article that talked about this statistic. What do you think about that? Have you ever thought about that? Um, I think that that could be a really helpful way in bringing it into the conversation in a safer way. And I assume you recommend that they speak with a professional, that they facilitate some of the initial conversations, if not the very first one, but the beginning conversations with a therapist like you or someone on your team. And I'm curious if any of you, your team offers online counseling or coaching. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have group practices in Austin and Denver, and almost all of them do online or teletherapy as well. And yeah, it can definitely help speaking with someone who has been trained in this issue. And I and I say trained because that's really important. A lot of therapists will say they're open poly friendly, or um, or you know they're open to working with those types of couples or clients. But oftentimes they don't have any training, or they're they're saying you know I know I have a friend that does it, or maybe I've dabbled it. And, and so that makes me qualified. And as we know, with just sex therapy in general, that doesn't. Um, and so, you know, going to this training, like we're having in Austin with you, that really this is the level two consensual non-monogamy training, it's monogamish, um, can be really helpful too. And there, those conferences are open to lay people as well, especially the Saturday afternoon portion. And so I think going to a therapist, going to workshops, going to a therapist that's trained um, in these issues, you know, ask your therapist, have you been to any specific training around consensual non-monogamy and working with couples with these issues, uh, reading books, uh, all of those things, listening to podcasts, all of those things can really help kind of broaden your vocabulary and give you some tips in terms of how to, how to do it in a healthy way. And so if folks are interested in connecting, uh, go to the website respark.co. So respark.co. And we'll make sure we share all those links as well as your social handles. And I, I actually appreciate that the therapist training is open to the public. So as I mentioned, next weekend, I'm going to be in Austin for advanced skills for open relationships. And I'll be facilitating a day-long training as will Dr. Eli Sheff. And I really appreciate that you're opening up these conversations to the public because it's kind of an old guard, old school approach of of medical pr practitioners or clinicians hoarding information. You know, you can't look at my clipboard, you can't look at my file. When in fact, individuals 
themselves, you, anybody, can be as well equipped as a therapist to navigate many of these challenges. Now, as Heather, you were saying, if you have specific training in open relationships, which is probably less than, you know, 0.1% of therapists, (laughs) then it's absolutely worth the investment. But even just, you know, as an individual attending some of these events, I think can be really helpful. Now, I want to leave with one last consideration. uh, And that is the fact that when you run into a difference in desire, whether, you know, I want to be open, my partner wants to be monogamous. Sometimes you can navigate that and find an even happier relationship than you had in the beginning. Sometimes you can navigate that and just extend what you already had. And sometimes it does result in the end of a relationship. And that can be an appropriate outcome too. Do you run into this where people come in to get to your practice and you realize that it's not about some magical compatibility, but their goals, their desires, their willingness to compromise and invest are so misaligned that, you know, there's not a lot you can do? Yes, every once in a while. I am, I'm, I'm thankful and grateful that doesn't happen very often because that would be really difficult as a therapist dealing with these issues. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, you do see those couples that they're just never going to align, you know, or, you know, those couples where one partner is saying, I don't want to do this. I want to be monogamous. I was happy monogamous my whole life. That's what I want to continue to do. And if the other partner is saying, you know what, this is something that is really within, within me. This is something that I really want to do and explore and this is really valuable to me and I want this then we're talking about okay what do we do now do we end this relationship do we change the style of the relationship to you know maybe they're just friends or companions um, you know I'm a big proponent of you know, leaving relationships better than when you found them. So mm-hmm. leaving each other better than whenever you found them and so mm-hmm. um, how do we end this relationship where we can still be friends and that we can still support one another and these goals and these dreams that we have do you have to remind people that it is okay for your partner to evolve and change? Because you must run into the cases where, you know, you were married 10 or 20 years ago or even two years ago and you were committed to monogamy or maybe both of you failed in even discussing it. Yeah, and that's now, what happens. <laughs> yeah, and, and now somebody says, you know what, that's not me. That's really not who I am sexually. When I consider my sexual values and I've taken the time to do that, I'm no longer aligned with that. And I think that there can be a lot of blame. Well, you said one thing five years ago, or you said one thing 20 years ago. How do you deal with that, uh, you know, change and evolution over time that sometimes will result in, in both distress and hurt feelings? Yeah, that's really tough because then you're kind of, again, pointing fingers, blaming, you said this, I can't believe you lied or that you agreed to this when you weren't really okay with it. And I think part of it is just kind of expanding the conversation and helping them talk about it in a different way. Because oftentimes whenever we get into that specific conversation of, will you agree to this, then we're not being really, really beneficial. So if we're able to expand the conversation to, you know, our desires change, our wants change, change and really relating it to, you know, other parts of your life. But whenever you commit to being a telephone operator, um, you committed to that. Do you have to be that for the rest of your life? Right. Mm -hmm. So really kind of like drawing analogies to other parts of your life that, you know, if you liked pizza, 
pizza. You loved it. You could eat it every day in your 20s. And now you don't even want to look at it. (laughs) Um, And so really kind of like expanding that conversation to where like it's okay and it's acceptable and it's acceptable and it's good for our desires to change. And it's good for us to um, explore other ideas in the world. And sometimes that leads to exploring other ideas in relationships and with our sexuality. And we hope that, you know, our partner can join us for the ride sometimes, but sometimes they're not willing to, and that's okay too. They have their own boundaries and their own limits. And I think that we have to support them in their decisions as well. I really appreciate that perspective. And I think it it gives you an opportunity to not paint anybody as the bad person, uh, even when mistakes are made, even when, you know, things change. And and of course, life is fluid. Relationships are fluid. Uh, I really, uh, really appreciate it. Appreciative of your time. Uh, Excited to see you in Austin next weekend. Uh, And again, once again, we'll be at the Adventures in Unicorn Hunting with the Sexual Health Alliance. This is Happy Endings and Other Advanced Skills for Open relationships. So folks can check that out. And we've been joined today by Heather McPherson, a licensed supervisor of marriage and family therapy, a certified sex therapist, and the founder of Sexual Health Alliance and ReSpark Therapy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you once again to our sponsors, Desire Resorts, for your ongoing support of this podcast. And also for all that you do for couples in opening their minds, because it's quite a life-changing experience to go down to Desire. Check them out at desire experience. Folks, have a great week wherever you're at. We'll be back next Friday and every Friday with a new episode. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.